0: Welcome to Inside the Pressure Cooker, where cooks and chefs share their stories of life inside the kitchen.
1: I think everybody that's in this industry kind of understands that chefs are competitive, but they're not necessarily competitive with other chefs all the time so much as they are themselves. Like just the thrill of learning new stuff, of Testing yourself, like constantly pushing your boundaries into, you know, techniques that you don't know, ingredients that you've never been shown. I think that's the most exciting part of doing this at all. And that's Jeff Morris talking about
0: his inspiration and what keeps him going and driven on a daily basis. Uh, just that constant, we'll call it curiosity right the curiosity to learn the curiosity to grow the curiosity to to push yourself to see how far you can go Um, it's in all of us but where is yours at right how far can you push yourself Um, how far will you allow to push yourself chef morris how are you today sir doing well chef how are you oh man living the life yeah. Definitely. Well, I really, really, really appreciate you jumping on with this. Um, I know time is, is pretty precious. Um, free time uh, is pretty <laughs> damn precious, right? Happy um, to do it. Oh, good. Um, so kind of give us a little bit about you. I mean, who are you? Who's, who's, uh, who's Josh Morris?
1: Uh, well, I'm a husband, father of four children. And, uh, been a cook for 20 years now and keep on making moves, trying to be the best chef I can be. That's, I mean, that's pretty much how I care about <laughs> my family and cooking and music. And those are like the only three things that I like. So
0: right on. So, I mean, how do you find the time? How do you... How do you find the time to balance work and home, you know, husband and uh, and four kids? I mean, I, I, I get it. I've been there. I've I've had my own struggles as both a husband and a father. Um, I've only got two kids, so I can't imagine. But, I mean, you've got any tricks or anything that has
1: worked for you or
0: maybe something that hasn't worked for you?
1: Uh, Well, my wife is also in the restaurant industry. So, I mean, that's how we met, you know. 20 years ago, we've been married for 10, but I mean, it gets, it does get rough cause there's, you know, there's days at a time where I just straight up don't see my family. I leave for work before they get up to go to school. I get home from work after they've already gone to bed and, uh, you really just gotta take the time that you do have and make it the best that you possibly can. You know, I grew up with my parents working a lot, so I was alone a lot, and I kind of, I don't know, I learned how to be good at being alone, I guess, in in some kind of way. Like, I honestly prefer it, but um, I didn't really want that for my kids as much as I was alone. You know, they have. Their grandmas that take them. They have their sisters that take care of them, and me and my wife kind of work opposite schedules, so there's always someone home with them. Right, but, but there are, you know, there are sacrifices you have to make in this business. That's just a part of it.
0: Well, and and we know that, but how do your kids handle those sacrifices? I mean, they're making sacrifices, and they don't necessarily know it. I mean, so. What are some of those challenges you've had to face with them on that?
1: Or helping Um, them understand? um, I think, you know, I'm pretty frank with my kids. Like I have pretty frank, honest conversations with them. I'm not. I don't lie. I don't beat around the bush. So I tell them like this is this isn't just Daddy's job. Like this is Daddy's career, his life. This is his passion. This is what he wants to do, and there are going to be some days that I don't see you, but the days that we do see each other are going to be the best days. You know, we go to the park, we get donuts, we get pizza and watch movies, you know, whatever it is that they want to do that day. I'm all about it. They do make everything better. Don't they? <laughs> and, you know, they get it that sometimes daddy just works, you know, three back-to-back 18-hour days, so he's going to be a little tired. Like My kids are very understanding for the most part. It does suck when they kind of have those moments of breakdown, and they're like, we just miss you. I'm like, I miss you guys too.
0: Yeah, those are fucking daggers, aren't
1: they? Yeah, it's hard. But, I mean, you just got to remember what the end game is and keep your focus on that and try your best to control the short game.
0: Right. Endgame. We'll talk about that here in a little bit, uh, towards the end too. Um, now you've been in the industry 20 years, right? And, you know, so I've had the pleasure of working with you for, I think it was what, five or six years now. Um, and you like, I mean, I, so I know a little bit about your background. I mean, you've gone from you started in the industry dishwasher to cook, I mean, into a management role back into a, a uh, cook role, back into a management role, back into a cook role. I mean, so you've kind of been all over that a little bit, like, um, which isn't a bad thing, right? Um, You know, you mentioned it and um, I've always said this as well. I mean, sometimes you got to take a step back to take a step up, right? Yeah. And, um, but what is, what is something that you've learned during that time of, like when you take that step back to just cook that, yeah, it's something that you've learned in because every time you get into a management role, there's more that you're going to learn more about the business and the operations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so what is some of that stuff that as cooks always take for granted where you're just like, man, if you only fucking knew, <laughs>
1: um, in a manager role or sous chef, chef, whatever the case may be, there's, you know there's you have to be so much more than just one thing I think that's the part that some cooks just don't really understand is that you get to cook you get to do one function when you're in a manager role you have to be a cook a best friend a boss a counselor you know uh, Excel spreadsheet professional I mean like you have to do <laughs> You have to do a dozen different things and you have to do it every minute of every day that you're there. There's so much more to balance. When you're a cook, there's, especially for somebody that's gone from a manager role back into being a line cook, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a punch to the ego. Like, you know that you're meant to do better things than this, but I mean, damn it, it is liberating. (laughs) I mean, it is so much fun to get back on that line. And I think that, you know, all chefs, all great chefs kind of want to just be line cooks at some point, you know, and all good line cooks want to become chefs. So it's been hectic, but also fun to kind of play this back and forth role. But I know that it's getting me to where I'm going. You know, this shit is chess. It ain't checkers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, and I know there's been plenty of times when you know, in that leadership role, that chef position, like I almost enjoyed just jumping back onto the line, just getting my shit kicked in for a little bit, just to be like, this is why I did this, why I don't know. But right now I don't have to worry about any of those costs or spreadsheets or all that other managerial crap that's associated with, uh, like you said, juggling it. But, you know, um, I know myself at heart, I've always considered myself a cook. Right. You know, I've had the the luxury of being a chef um, in many positions and, and growing a lot of things. But like in my heart, my soul, I'm just a cook.
1: Yeah. I definitely feel that, too.
0: Yeah. I, I think just about any anyone worth their salt in the kitchen probably feels that way as well. So, you know, there's plenty of those kids that come out of school. Um that are just like, I am a chef. And you're like, yeah, hey, you ain't shit, man. <laughs> yeah. You can't even figure out how to use a deli slicer. Yeah. I'm going to go sit over there. Yeah. Um, so with that, like, okay. Um, someone walks into your kitchen, right. Their first day, whether you're the chef or just a cook, like, what is some of that advice that you would have for someone, um, you know, as they walk in, And I mean, just as green as they can be behind the ears.
1: Um, Best advice I could give somebody, whether I'm on the line with them or managing them, is find the person that has the best habits of cooking, of cleaning, of staying organized, of just being on top of your shit. Follow that person. Learn to do what they do. And then after you've learned what they do, learn to do it better than them. That's pretty solid. These kids that come in today that are just like, like you said, green as can be never had a cook job before the quickest thing or not the quickest thing. The best thing that they need to learn very quickly is etiquette. (laughs) Like there are certain things that you just don't do in a kitchen. You don't pick up somebody else's knife and just start using it. You don't do that. You get your station set up first before you start worrying about what anybody else is doing. It's just learning those little <laughs> steps.
0: Oh, I always loved that new guy that came in and always had a, an opinion on how everybody else is doing their shit. Yeah. and But yet yeah, he couldn't lock down his own.
1: Yeah. But he had
0: opinions for everybody else.
1: <laughs> he didn't last. That would be the best advice I could give any new cook. All right. Pick up on the language. Pick up on the etiquette. <laughs> some damn social cues.
0: Yeah, no, and I mean, there's a lot said to cooking in uh, the line, and like you said, I, I think you you mentioned like whether it's the social cues and those etiquette, but uh, one of those whale oil machines too that they they almost start to operate when you got a crew that's been there and worked together, like almost in silence. But everybody yeah. knows what's going on, what the other person's doing, when they're in trouble, when they need help, when they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always a pretty beautiful thing to see, too. Yeah. They don't need that new kid rolling in. Like a fucking. Yeah. Anyway. So, but how do they know cookiness is for them? How did you know it was for you?
1: Um. When I was a kid, like, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, was when uh, Emerald first came on TV, and I used to watch that show with my dad, and we would come up with, you know, different dishes to do with each other, or I would cook dinner for my parents and just try, like, little weird things. They didn't always love it, but it was fun for me. <laughs> And I thought that was kind of the end of it, honestly, was just like, this is something I like to do at home, not a big deal. When I got a job at a restaurant, I started out as a host and a busser, Um, because it was such an entry-level gig, you know? Sure. And I hated hosting. I don't like talking to people. I was a great busser, though, because you can put your head down, you can stay busy, and you don't have to talk to anyone. And about eight months in the kitchen manager came to us and he was like, Hey, if you guys have any friends that want to be cooks, uh, please send them our way. And I was like, I'll do it. And the look on his face was kind of hilarious. He was like, you want to cook? I was like, I don't understand why you're looking at me like that, but yeah, I'll, I'll do it. (laughs) It was right towards the end of high school. So I was like, "My my schedule's about to open up. I can work whenever. Uh, it's more money than bussing. So that sounds good to me. he was like, all right, I'll give you a shot, but you're starting in dish. Okay. Hmm. So I worked as a dishwasher at night for, I don't know, two, three months before I started like scooting around there and watching the fry cooks and the flat top and seeing how things were done. Ask questions, be like, how can I help? what, prep do you need? And eventually just kind of folded myself into being dishwasher slash fry cook. Eventually they moved me to the line. They got another dishwasher. I didn't have to worry about that. And uh, I was on the line for, I don't know, three, four months. When there was one night where the entire kitchen crew walked out. And I can remember those guys like they were people that I knew like socially and through work too. So they were on their way out the back door. They were like, yo, you coming? And I just kind of stood there, like not really knowing what to do. I mean, I was 17 years old I didn't really know what the best move was. So I stayed and I closed the kitchen down by myself.
0: Dude. So why did everybody walk?
1: Um, I don't know, man, the kitchen in the, restaurant we were in in the town we were in, like everybody was drunks and junkies and drug dealers. So like none of these people were what you would call particularly reliable in the first place. Sure. But I don't know. They used to bitch about everything all the time. And eventually they just kind of, they were like, this is it we're leaving. And I stayed behind. I closed the kitchen till about three o'clock in the morning and I was about to filter the fryers and then the closing manager was like, "You know what? Just go. We'll deal with the fryers in the morning." Okay. So they brought in a whole new crew and a corporate training team, and since I was like the last man standing, you know, I got moved up pretty quick to in a leadership role. And it just became something that I was good at and it was weird because I was like this 18 year old kid and I'm managing a team of like 30 and 40 year old guys. You know, there was a lot of weird power struggles, but I mean, eventually I was like, I was always the guy on top. Nice. And I worked at that place for a decade before the idea of being a chef ever even set in. It was honestly, um, I started dating my wife and she was really into food. So she would watch like Bourdain all the time. And that became a big factor in my life. Like, who is this guy? I've never heard of him before. And he just, I read Kinship confidential and I thought that shit was just magical. So I left that restaurant to go be, I took a really heavy pay cut too to go be a line cook at a new restaurant that was opening up. But I was so amazed that it was like, there was a chef there and people brought their own knives to work and little things like that, like hella impressed me. So I wanted to be like on top of my game right from the get go. And I don't think I was during the training phase, but, um, once I got into like the ebb and flow of everything, um, you know, my talent as a cook really started to shine through my schedule was limited cause I do have the kids and the wife and sure. everything like that. But, um, you know, eventually they saw something in me that they were like, you know, this kid's got something to offer. So they put me in the manager program, got bumped up to sous chef after about three years. And I guess I was a sous chef for about a year and a half before I got promoted to executive. I was executive there for two years. All right. And then from there, um, I moved to, I didn't move. I went to a different restaurant in Dallas and became a sous chef there. Sure. And I'm still at that gig, but I picked up a different part-time gig, uh, at night working the line because it's with a, uh, a really talented chef that I really want to work for.
0: Yeah. And that's a, that's more of a pop-up kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Like a temporary? It is.
1: The, the location that it's at right now is only open till the end of the year, but um, they're starting a restaurant group. So they have a lot of plans for future mm-hmm. restaurants within the next year. And I definitely want to be a part of that. Nice. So. Okay.
0: No, there's a lot of parts in there that you you hit on that I think a lot of people, you know, do not understand, but they should. And the first one, the concept of loyalty, right? I mean, yeah. you show up on time, you be there, no excuses, ready to go, you know, thick and thin. No, you, you cut through all the drama and all the bullshit that everybody just bickers about because you're on the line, you're getting tired. I mean... <laughs> Bitching is almost part of it, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean you're all going to walk out, you know, but being loyal enough to also understand that, hey, you know, you know that you know your role, and if you want to be able to grow, it, your loyalty is not to your friends, but it's, it's to that restaurant. Um, yeah. You know, and then that other part is you said, how can I help? Man. I wish more people could say that, you know, the amount of times too, that more lately it towards the end of my career where I didn't hear, how can I help? What I heard was, well, pay me to do it and I'll do it. And it was like,
1: okay, you're fired. (laughs) I think that's part of the etiquette is a lot of these kids stepping in is they don't understand that whole, in the trenches together mentality, that it's not just you, what you do affects everybody on that line. Yes. So I think they really need to get their head in the game and be like, okay, I'm done with this. What can I do to help the guy standing next to me?
0: Yeah. And it's always amazing when you have someone that is in the kitchen and They don't quite understand that because, you know, they're just, they're there. It's kind of a job. It's the only thing they know. And then like that one day when you see it all finally click for them, you know, you can actually see it. And all of a sudden it's just, they become part of the team and it it changes everything. But the other part is just the the question, like, how can I help? What can I do? You know, that's just, that's like saying, Hey man, I want to learn. Teach me. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's, that's what you're saying. You know, I want to grow like help me make me better. Like what, what do I need to do? Um, because if you just could show up every day doing the same damn thing, you're doing your same me's and all your same prep and running the same service. Like, yeah, you're going to master that menu, but that's it. Yeah. Right. How are you supposed to grow? And and nobody's going to come to you and say, Hey, you want to do this? They kind of will. But you have to prove to them first that you want to. Yeah. Right. As opposed to just sitting there waiting for opportunities and then bitching that nothing ever happens about it. Yeah. So. So line. Let's talk about the line real quick. Real quick too. one tool, Mm. one item that you have to have on the line. I mean, what is your. The first thing out of your knife kit, outside of the knife, right? What would
1: that be? Um, It is the knife. It's always the knife. Um, I make sure I have my spoons, my towels, my sandy bucket, and some water. Cutting board, and I'm good. All right. What kind of knife do you use? Uh, I switch back and forth between a uh, Dalstrong Phantom Series and a Shoon. I don't remember what model the shoon is, but I just sharpened it. So it's a beast.
0: There you go. You sharpen your own knives.
1: Yeah. I'm still kind of learning how to do it efficiently because it takes a real long damn time for me to do it.
0: But. No, I'm trying to see. I I saw an infographic out there somewhere. I was talking about chefs and and sharpening knives. And it was like almost like 30% of cooks and chefs don't even sharpen their knives. And I was just like, holy shit. Um, You know, and like the other part that everybody has to understand too, that most people are going to listen to this. Like like they understand that a honing steel is that it's, it's a hone. It's to help maintain the edge. It's not going to put an edge on the knife.
1: Yes. So. I had to yell at a person recently because he stood on the line and honed his knife for, I'm not exaggerating, 10 minutes. Just standing there doing it over and over again. Usually I like that sound, but for ten minutes straight I had to like I was like, Jesus Christ, kid. Do you have nothing nothing else to stop it? If it wasn't sharp in the first thirty seconds, it's definitely not sharp now.
0: Yeah. Especially if you keep changing the angles on it. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so what inspires you? What inspires you to grow? I mean, I know when I say inspired too, like we're driven by a passion, right? To grow. And there's, there's something about the food industry that, um, man, I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, it's just in you, right? Um, and then there's that drive and that inspiration that, that you want to grow. Some people have it more than others. Um, you know, so what is that for you?
1: Um, I think everybody that's in this industry kind of understands that chefs are competitive, but they're not necessarily competitive with other chefs all the time so much as they are themselves. Like just the thrill of learning new stuff, of testing yourself, like constantly pushing your boundaries into, you know, techniques that you don't know, ingredients that you've never been shown. Sure. I think that's the most exciting part of doing this at all. So that's kind of where it always goes to is I love learning and I love pushing myself.
0: So the best way to say that and wrap that up is you're inspired by the curiosity of it all.
1: Yes. And I constantly get new cookbooks and I fly through them and I try to stick to cuisine that like makes sense to me. Okay. I think you should, when you're a chef and you're trying to find a style, you need to align yourself with other chefs of that style or you're just going to kind of be all over the place. (laughs) Fair enough. So yeah, I just, I buy used cookbooks a lot. And then when I have any downtime, I just read a couple of pages. Sometimes they're cookbooks. Sometimes they're just memoirs from the kitchen. Uh, Sometimes they're leadership books. I mean, anything that I can to just keep growing.
0: So what's your favorite cookbook? Like one that you always kind of when you're looking to do something, whether it's because you just like the techniques in it, you're still kind of trying to master and tweak it. Like what's the one that you kind of go to the most right now?
1: Um, I don't know. Honestly, I have a lot. (laughs) There's, uh, uh, the Bistronomy movement from like 10 years ago when all the Paris Bistros started kind of switching their format around and being like the prefix menu, Mm -hmm. but it was cheaper. It was in a relaxed environment, had a great wine list. Uh, those really inspire me. Um, the man race, a book from David Kinch. I don't think his style and mine are really very similar, but his philosophies about food, how he thinks about food is very impactful. Right. And a lot of the, like, I guess, early California stuff, uh, Alice waters, Judy Rogers, you know, people that were affiliated with shape and I don't know why I just I really connect with that kind of food. It was all very stripped down um, really put a high um, what's the word I'm looking for emphasis on the quality of the food, not necessarily the presentation or you know anyone can make a steak taste good, right yeah you make a carrot taste good, yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, that that early style, that California cuisine, and like you said, that uh and everything that came from that, um, it, r- it really is almost its own um, category of California cuisine as well. Yeah. Um, because California cuisine could be lumped in with a lot of, um, I don't want to say that fusion element, um, but there's a lot of that Pacific Rim that gets involved. But when it comes to you know, the, the shape and that was all about just making, you know, having the best produce you can. Um, and it was really, I think a lot more about, you know, the, the, the first farm to table, um, kind of <laughs> movement, you know, I, I say that laughingly, um, because it's like, well, almost everything's farm to table, right. Unless you're like growing something in the lab or something, But um, all the produce that comes out there, it comes from a farm somewhere. Um, But it was more of that, the local bore, Um, you know, and it was just really emphasizing individual dishes and not over complicating dishes as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely (laughs) an art to
1: that one as well. Uh, Jeremy Fox is another big one okay his book on vegetables is really good and um the chef that works under him andy dubrava i've been following him on instagram and they really take um the old world like ideas of you know using every part of the plant or the animal a lot of preservation techniques and i think that's just fascinating I think it's kind of something that got lost to time. And now everyone just, you know, they throw away their herb stems and they throw away their onion peels. Right. But there's so much cool shit that you can do with that. If you just think about it.
0: Yeah. There's definitely a lot to say about at one point, everything was about using, I mean, people used every part of everything because they had to. Um, Yeah. And then the, the concept of, I don't even know if it's a concept, but you know, the the plentiful, um, how everything was just so plentiful, you know, it just created a lot of laziness. Yeah, you know, and it's like ah, I don't have to worry about that; just throw it away. I mean, you didn't have to worry about making your own stocks. Your people were buying them. You know, they're buying everything, whether it was the demis or their stocks. And but even then, it was uh, they're loaded with salt and shit. There's nothing to the shift that no one speaks of i don't know if you want to touch on any anyone but there's there's at least one and if if someone says that there isn't a shift that nobody talks about then they're living in a fucking hole they didn't realize how fucking bad things went but whether you know you're a cook you know it could be you know uh, the chef and you know the team walks out and you're just like what I mean, that's a whole nother shit show. You got to kind of have to, to face like, why did the team walk? Yeah, but um, you know, it, it could be anything. I remember the the first uh, was it was it the first Mother's Day at Barley? Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, see, and that's <laughs> it. <laughs> right? And there, there's nothing else to say. Yeah, you know, I mean, so. Um, and so I've stolen that one from you now. Um, you know, so what, what's one for you?
1: Well, at Barley, we had the sheer luck of, was it high school graduations also falling on Mother's Day weekend? So uh, every college. Day. It was, uh, <laughs> college, college graduation. It was two colleges. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, all those Mother's Day weekends were just Brutal. <laughs> we've gotten to the point to where everything's kind of like with me and the crew, but everything bad that's happened is just kind of a joke now. Yeah. It's not, there's no things that's like taboo, but, uh, man doing, the, I was doing an event out of town where I had to make a thousand tiny pancakes. <laughs> yeah. I had to make a thousand tiny pancakes over the course of, two days. So I got there at 5am to finish the last batch. And my general manager had the great idea of injecting them with blueberry syrup instead of doing it on the top or as a dip. (laughs) So I had a 1000 tiny pancakes, whipped cream, lemons for zesting and this pot of blueberry syrup that I like triple wrapped in plastic because I knew it was going to be riding in the car with me and not in the trunk. So I drive to Dallas to, uh, the, they told me that it was at the Dallas market, uh, like the marketplace, not the farmer's market. So they gave me the wrong place to go anyway. So I'm sitting there for about 20 minutes texting everybody. I was like, where is everybody? Where do I need to go? How do I set up? And this was like one of the first events I'd ever done too. So this was, you know, already. Anxiety. <laughs> yeah, a lot of anxiety. I want to do it perfect. And they were like, oh yeah, that's, we're not there. We're at the farmer's market. I said, okay. So I try to get back on the highway and I can't get over. And I almost hit the median. And I had to slam on my brakes and the blueberry syrup just goes flying all over the car. <laughs>
0: At that point you're like, fuck it. I'm
1: going home. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, luckily it was wrapped, so it wasn't a total loss, but I mean, damn it, man, I was already in a bad mood. <laughs> Get to the farmer's market. We end up being one of the busiest stalls. I'm glad everybody loved it, but I'm, Hand injecting blueberry syrup into tiny pancakes. My hands are already arthritic as fuck just from cooking for so long. Like I was in a lot of pain, but I just kept going through it.
0: Didn't you then- guys think about using like those little, uh, like those little plastic tubes that you just kind of, you know, um, I forget what they're called, but you just kind of fill them up um, with your syrup or something and just stick them into it. And then, they can squirt it in themselves.
1: No, that never occurred to a chef.
0: Oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> that would work for you.
1: Yeah, that would have been great. if Someone had come up with that idea then. Huh. The event ends. Finally, I parked in the wrong place. So I got stuck behind all the trucks <laughs> for an hour. I finally get back to the restaurant to drop off all the equipment and it is just balls to the wall shitty busy. It has been all day while I've been gone. Everyone is losing it. So I just jump in. I just like throw all that stuff in dish, jump on the line, start running the pass, start doing prep, make sure we're not like 86 anything. And it was just a hellacious, brutal ass service. And that day I worked from five o'clock in the morning to about 11 or 1130 at night. And it was just absolute shit the whole time.
0: And you're just wondering, to, why am I chef? Why do I do this? <laughs> but you show up the next day with a smile on. You're like, let's go, bitches.
1: Yeah, you do. When you're in that kind of position, when you're a leadership position and everyone's looking to you, you have to put that face on. You have to keep that game face so that everyone else keeps a game face. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you can't let people know that Titanic's going down.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, oh, definitely. Big part. But yeah, that was one of the worst shifts I've ever worked.
0: <laughs> yeah, moment of silence for all the others out there. <laughs> so what's next for you, man? Like you've, you've kind of taken that step back, you know, out of some leadership uh, right now. Um, you're having fun, you're cooking. Um, you know, kind of rediscovering yourself almost, um, cause there's a lot you learn about yourself again and the opportunity to just cook and not, (laughs) not juggle and manage. Right. Um, it, it allows a lot of mental space becomes cleared up. Right. So what are you planning for? What do you, what's your, what's next for you?
1: Um, I think the goal is when this um, pop-up is over uh, the chef and the group that she's with are going to start opening new restaurants. And I've already kind of talked to her about wanting to be a sous chef and she seems pretty on board. So I think once this pop-up is over um, I'll go back to just having one job with them because it's a, it's a hugely talented chef Sure, that you know, I can learn a lot from, what? and that's that's the biggest goal here. Is
0: You've got three months. Don't fuck it up. Oh,
1: don't worry about that. I don't fuck up, chef.
0: <laughs> well, you know,
1: life happens. Life does.
0: Well, what's something I'm not asking you? What's something we haven't talked about you're just like, man?
1: Uh, The questionnaire that you sent me, and you asked me a question: What is overplayed? Sure, and I I gave an answer that you would probably scoff at. Nah, (laughs) meat. Meat is overplayed.
0: Now we're in the DFW area. (laughs) We are the home of the steakhouse. So, I, in many ways, meat has been overplayed for <laughs> in this area a while. Yeah. Um, but it's so hard to get away from in this market. Yeah.
1: But, uh, I mean, ever since COVID, I mean, the prices prices of meat have gone up. Quality has gone down. There's been tons of shortages. I mean, I think it's just not just a responsible thought process to start doing more vegetarian focused dishes, but it's also a new challenge for people that have only, that have always had steak on the menu or always had a pork chop on the menu or sure, you know, roasted chicken as much as I love roasted chicken. Sometimes you just got to break off. Mm -hmm. And like I said earlier, like anybody can make a, a steak taste good. There's, there's different ways of doing it and you can make the best steak that you can possibly make, but it's still a steak.
0: Yeah. Start with a great steak and don't fuck it up.
1: Yeah. So to really like push yourself in a direction of, you know, how do I take whatever we get from the farm? If you're a farm to table place, like they just dropped off, you know, 30 pounds of fennel. What are we going to do with 30 pounds of fennel? (laughs) I don't know. Pickles. (laughs) <laughs> you do a lot of pickles you do a lot of preserves you yeah. know. there's a lot more fun to be had with in a situation like that than hey we got a case of steaks in sure no i agree with that using meat as an ingredient instead of the main focus i think is a fun way to think about food
0: no i mean there there's a lot that you've mentioned and you know where you kind of brought when you said that um, when, a, when a case of steaks comes in, it's like, yeah, it's not as fun, you know, but that also well, there's no buts, right? But I won't say but again. Um, I think one of the problems we've had in the restaurant industry um, is we've become so detached from our food source. Yeah. Right? People are bringing in stuff all the time and steaks and all the middle cuts and all that stuff, because that's just all they know, right? <laughs> Filet, ribeye, strip. It's like, yep. what about the rest of the animal? Yeah. You know, and there's so much of uh, just so much detachment now because everything comes in boxes. Everything's nice and neat and clean. You know, it's like, honestly, I mean, some of the beef I've seen come in, it's it, it could have been a vegetable. You know what I mean? Like it's it's literally like so detached from from everything else. It's just um, you know people just don't understand enough of it, Um, and they're happy as shit in their ignorance of just of continuing that.
1: That's another good reason I wanted to work with the chef I'm with now, is because she does get locally you know, sourced meat, she gets in whole hogs Mm -hmm. and we butcher them ourselves and we can make hams and charcuterie and pâtés, terrines, sell the chops, you know, the tenderloins on special, but it's all about just breaking down this one pig and how much can you get out of it? Make head cheese. Like it's, it's been an awesome experience so far.
0: Oh, that's fantastic, man. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I know that's, it's definitely a smaller restaurant. Um, that's over there. So they've got a lot of luxuries that running a smaller restaurant where you can kind of pull off doing a lot of that. You bring in one hog and, and, and run with it. Um, you know, I've always tried to do that in some other places, but you know, like an animal, whether it's, you know, beef, it's like a brisket. It's like, well, there's only two briskets on an animal. There's only so much of any one thing. So in one, your entire restaurant that, you know, doing four or 500 covers a night and you need a hundred of these. It's like, well, now what? Um, So it's definitely a challenge, not just learning some of it, but kind of reprogramming the guests. That's a whole nother conversation right there.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: And thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Pressure Cooker. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you on how we're doing. And lastly, if you'd like to be on the show, go to insidethepressurecooker.com and fill out the form. It'll tell me a little bit about you, some of your story, and how it applies to the show. We'd love to hear from you and love to have you on the show.